Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Monday, September 23rd, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody, in for Michael Reed for another week on today's programme. It's National Parents Week. With the theme that it's okay to ask for help, we hear all about that. The armed guard the support unit to be moved to the border in preparation for Brexit. The latest on the RD bypass and the Meath mother who waves her son off on the school bus each morning and then gets into the car to drive his twin 20 kilometres to the same school. But first, is a return to the border on the island of Ireland now looking more likely? Six weeks away from the Brexit deadline, Jan-Claude Juncker, the EU Commission President, is reported this morning as saying that in the event of no deal, Ireland will have to implement border checks on the EU's behalf, but that the blame should lie with the UK and not with the EU. And joining us now to discuss this, we have Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Good morning. Morning, Orla. Now, the commentary obviously is that he's turning up the heat on Britain and not necessarily on us. That is, he's softening us up perhaps, but that his real target is Britain. Would you agree with that? Well, I think he's answering questions honestly, and, and anybody who saw or heard the interview, it, it's about 11 or 12 minutes long, so there was quite a, a lengthy discussion. What he very clearly said is that we couldn't have a hard border and that we couldn't have physical infrastructure or checks on the border between North and South. He also talked about the history. He talked about the fact that he felt certain people were forgetting the kind of history that we have on this island and that we need to do everything in our power to not let history repeat itself. So I think if you look at actually what he said, to me, he was replicating what the Commission and what we have been working on for the past number of months now at this stage, and that is in the event of a no deal, how do we prevent border infrastructure from re-emerging, but also protect the single market? So we have always said that there would have to be checks, but we are absolutely certain that there cannot be checks on the border. There cannot be checks anywhere that would pose or or cause a security risk or a threat. But obviously, in doing that, you you absolutely disrupt the flow of, at the moment, what is an all-island economy where, where business, where individuals, where goods can flow seamlessly north and south without having to be stopped anywhere, be it at a, a point of 
um, you know, be it at a, a initial factory or be it at a point of destination. So this is what we're working through at the moment. But The language you know, seems it, to it have changed, if, if it's fair to say. We, we were talking about a hard border and now we're talking about potential checks near or far away from the border. What does that actually mean in reality? Obviously, we're moving closer to the idea of some kind of checks, as you've been saying. But when we talk about them being near or far away from the border, what do we mean exactly by that? Well, this is what we're still working through with the Commission. And I think until we have uh, a final presentation or, or until we have a very clear idea as to what we're talking about, it's not something that we have or that we're able to present to people. And, and I understand you're, you're saying it's less than six weeks out. In fact, obviously, the timeline, if you look at the fact that the Council is on the 17th of October, the, the General Affairs the Council, which I attend and where we prepare for that Council, is the week before that, so the time is actually much shorter. But until we have a very clear picture of what that looks like, then it's very hard to, to explain to people. But what we are being very clear in saying is that this will not be good. It won't replicate the backstop. It won't allow business to continue. A, a lot of business that trade north and south in the seamless way that they do now. And this is why the backstop is so important. And, you know, we hear a lot of talk in the last few weeks about the UK saying they want to deal saying that they have alternative arrangements, that they have other ways to deal with this, that they want the backstop removed. There is already a clause within the withdrawal agreement, the, the, the deal essentially, or the treaty that was negotiated over the past two and a half years, which allows for some form of alternative arrangements, which allows for something other than the backstop to come into play. And that doesn't require the withdrawal agreement to be opened up. It doesn't require it to be changed or amended. It just requires us to know exactly what those details are. And as of yes, what we've seen presented by the UK, the papers that they gave to the Commission last week, it, it appears that they fall far short. And really what we want is, is to replicate what the backstop does. It doesn't have to be the same, but we need to protect the Good Friday Agreement. We need to ensure that there is no border re-emergence at any stage, anywhere along the border. And we need to try and protect the, the cooperation north and south, which of course feeds into our oil island economy and the single market. So what we're asking is that the backstop that we have negotiated and that does all of that if it's to be replaced that it has to fulfil all of those requirements and as of yes we haven't seen that and Obviously the, um, the Taoiseach this morning no sorry, sorry to come in but obviously the Taoiseach this morning is quoted as saying there are no proposals yet from the UK that meet the objectives of the backstop and you've just outlined there the clear objectives of the backstop are, Is what we're looking for at this point a backstop by another name? Are we looking for something that will do the same work but just call it something else? Well, I mean, I think the word backstop, even at this stage, has probably become a challenging word for many. What we want is to achieve the same objectives. And I think what, what's challenging for many people here and what's difficult often is that the UK say that they want the same objectives. They say that they want to protect the peace process. And, and as co-guarantors of the, the Good Friday Agreement, there is an obligation on them to do that, irrespective of the kind of outcome we have, or whether it's a deal or no deal. They say that they want to prevent reintroduction of border infrastructure. And by simply saying that they won't put up borders, we, we know that's not really, you know, you can't necessarily say that because that's not how trade works and that's not how the single market works. And the, and the UK know that. But they also say that they want to maintain good relations between the UK and Ireland. And obviously relations north and south have really evolved and have transformed uh, since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and integral to the backstop is the protection of those areas of cooperation of which the UK government themselves have identified there's about 152 and it's everything from education to health to transport to communities working together to agriculture to tourism. So there's a huge amount at stake here 
And that is why it's so important that whether it's called the backstop, whether it's not called the backstop, whether it's, you know, looks and comes together in a different shape or format, what we want to do is protect all of those reasons, or all of the things I've just outlined at the beginning of this interview. And the UK themselves have said they want to do the same. So let's come together. Let's, you know, the UK bring forward solutions or proposals. The papers that they brought forward last week appear to be certain aspects of the backstop uh, that were kind of picked out. But obviously, So there was some movement in there, you believe? There was some movement there, and, and I think we have to be somewhat positive. However, it wasn't enough. It wasn't an official paper. It doesn't actually fulfil all of the requirements. So really, with less than six weeks out, we are still no better on than we were a number of weeks ago. We have a deal there that was negotiated. And, you know, for everybody who says that they have other ways to deal with this, the backstop would only ever be enacted if those other alternative arrangements were not there. So we would still have an agreement. There would then be a transition period of at least two years where everything would stay the same. You would hope to negotiate a future relationship that never needed the backstop because it would be so close and comprehensive. And again, this is something that the UK have said that they want. So if all of these things were to fall into play, the backstop for us would only be a legal guarantee. It would never be a name and it's not. it, it, it never has been a name. It wouldn't be an overall objective. Do we have to reciprocate with movement? As you say, we saw a bit of movement. Do we have to reciprocate? Do you believe you and the government team are doing enough in that regard? I believe that we have moved um, a huge amount. I think the Commission has been very generous in terms of compromise, in terms of, uh, I suppose, the fact that the EU have had, or the, the UK from the beginning of this process have never really seemed to know or understand what it is that they wanted from Brexit. And so the backstop in itself is there because the fact, A, that the UK are leaving, B, because of the red lines they, they laid down very early on by Minister Theresa May said they were leaving the single market and the customs union. You then had the backstop in its original form, which was Northern Ireland specific, which again is supported by the majority of people in Northern Ireland. It was then amended and changed where the whole of the customs union applied to the whole of the UK. Again, this was at the request of the UK. We had that agreed by the then Prime Minister and signed off by her cabinet, which included the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. And now what we're being asked to do after two and a half years of movement and change, of amending, and of it being ratified by their government, of course, not the whole parliament, but by their cabinet, we're essentially being asked to completely remove it and replace it with nothing. So it's very difficult to ask Ireland to move any further when, A, we're saying that the backstop is, is, is just a means to an end and that it is only a legal guarantee if a future relationship doesn't and it's, work And it's out. too big an ask of us indeed. The uh, UN General Assembly today in New York, the Taoiseach is there, obviously speaking on climate change, but he also wants to have a side meeting with Boris Johnson. What do you think that meeting will be about? Well, I, I think it'll be about a number of things. First and foremost, Brexit, obviously, and, and I think the Taoiseach will reiterate what he said in their meeting exactly two weeks ago. I think it was a positive meeting. I think the Taoiseach uh, felt that the Prime Minister was genuine in what he was saying, that he wanted a deal. However, if a deal means by removal only of the backstop and replacing it with nothing, that's obviously not something we can accept. So I think the Taoiseach will be reiterating his view that we are willing and we are ready in the Commission is willing and ready to look at other proposals that they have. But if the proposal is that we simply remove the backstop and replace it with nothing, then unfortunately we were moving more towards the likelihood of a no-deal scenario. Uh, I think. We've are you prepared in government for a no-deal scenario? We are preparing and, and have been for some time now. Today, myself again, I'm, I'm engaging with 
um, people who haven't changed their driving license, those who are on a UK driving license, who will need to have an Irish license before the 31st of December, or 31st of October, or else they will not be valid here in the event of a no deal. My colleague Heather Humphreys is in Dundalk again, engaging with small and medium enterprise. We have a massive outreach programme across the country to individuals, both business and sector. And then obviously we have a huge amount of work ongoing with the Commission to try and, as I've said, reach those twin objectives to protect the all-island economy and, and our place in the single market and the single market, but also to prevent border infrastructure from really Finally, um, does it seem now it is getting uh, scarily likely that we will have a no deal? I think I'm, I, I've always been positive throughout this at the same time. I do feel it is very different to last April where we had a deadline where I think there was always a sense that there would be an extension if there is no real genuine reason for an extension or indeed, as the Prime Minister has said himself, if he does not ask for an extension and if things do not change, if we do not see any concrete or clear proposals, having spoken to, to my European colleagues and I think a lot of people at this stage, um, the uncertainty that would continue without any real change in policy or direction with the same Prime Minister, um, people would be less likely to seek an extension. And I think then, in that instance, yes, a no deal is more likely. But again, there are a lot of things that could happen. We know legislation was implemented in the UK that legally binds the Prime Minister to seek an extension if he cannot bring forward a new deal by a certain date in October. So there's a lot of things happening that are outside of our control in the UK. But of course, we are preparing and, and our central case planning at the moment is for a no deal. But you have course, your I, I work cut out for you, Minister of European Affairs, Helen McEntee. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on LMFM. And of course, uh, looking forward to getting your comments and your texts and calls on that subject and anything else we have for you this morning. Our number, the WhatsApp and text number is 86 658 and you can phone us on 1850 715 958. Comedy on LMFM. Coming up later on the programme, a dispute at the Lourdes Hospital. But first, we've been following closely here on the programme the proposed review of the RD bypass plan with very serious concerns expressed that the review will cause the budget to go elsewhere, delaying the construction of the bypass indefinitely. The Oireachtas Transport Committee heard submissions last week from Louth County Council and Transport Infrastructure Ireland, but there are still questions to be answered. And joining us now is Fianna Fáil TD Declan Brannock. Good morning. You're very welcome to the programme. Now, you've welcomed this review despite the risk of the delay causing the budget to be lost altogether. Why? Well, the project uh, started in 2004, 2005 in terms of its design and that's obviously 14 years. uh, And in the interim, uh, well, we all know the town of RD is choked with traffic and this bypass is essential not just for the trailers in RD uh, and, and the wider area. The impact on the rural area uh, was going to discommode considerably uh, people in, in uh, Mullinstown Cool and indeed Towns Park area. Uh, that area has expanded enormously in, in recent years between soccer clubs, football clubs uh, and indeed uh, businesses uh, and the hinterland would be cut off from RD and it was essential that their voice be heard and indeed uh, it's recognised by Transport Infrastructure Ireland and indeed Low County Council that their concerns need to be taken into account. I think it's terribly important to stress this point that at no time has anybody objected and in fact people welcome as I do with enthusiasm that the bypass should and will happen. Uh, the concerns raised 
and at all times raised by the rural residents, requested, as I did, that the concerns at the two junctions, uh, that those would be taken into account and that a guarantee would be given that post the, the, the spend of the money on the bypass that they would be retrofitted and that's what was requested I have to say there are uh, concerns out there that because this is going to have to go back to a planning process and was known subsequently as a part eight that people will start objecting uh, on a whole lot of other grounds this can has I been just a late issue and is the only concern of the two junctions Absolutely can I just say um, Declan Brannock that we had representatives uh, residents representative Anne Lennon in with us last week and she made it very clear that they're not objecting for the sake of objecting, that they have very credible and serious reasons to want to just look at how they are going to be uh, cut off as you've suggested in the whole hinterland and because that area is quite developed. So that's all very acceptable but she said she really believes there's a chunk of the jigsaw missing here, that she said that you know they know that they have to have their concerns addressed but they don't want the project to be lost to the town, they just want a bit of common sense around access and yet this review genuinely is going to really risk losing this budget Absolutely and um, I mean, I've met Anne Lennon and indeed the residents out there on numerous occasions and share exactly what she has said. In fact uh, this presentation to the uh, um, to the Transport Committee came out of surprise. I had been dealing with uh, uh, senior officials in the local authority. They had found a resolution to one of the junctions and they were trying to find a resolution particularly to the Towns Park Junction which would impact seriously on Coach Trim which is a massive business there who do great trade with the town of RD. And the reality here is that for some reason or other, there is that concern, and I would share that concern, that people will try to move this money on to another project. This happened with the Narrow Water Bridge, indeed, uh, where, the, where the money was moved into the train infrastructure and engines many years ago. But I have to say, uh, Mr Walsh uh, of TII made it very clear there's already seven million spent on this project. Anybody who's out in the region can see that the actual um, uh, the, the 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 infrastructure has already been prepared, and he gave a commitment uh, that there would be a follow through of the money in subsequent years. If people respect that the only concerns need that need to be addressed are those two junctions and people don't start going back into the whole issue of uh, nature and, and concerns that have already been focused on uh, previously, then I am satisfied that within a 12-month period, and that is based on what the CEO of Low County Council and the uh, uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland have said, that the delay will be of the order of 12 months. But, but is but that delay in itself not risky? Absolutely. The CEO of the County Council said that you couldn't possibly go out to tender with the contract currently because then it would change following the review. But that's not the case. You could put part of the tender out to contract straight away. You could get it as one part of the contract. This road bypass is going to take a number of years to build. You could get part of the contract underway and carry on the discussions with the group of the two areas you've mentioned and have that as a separate contract. It's a nonsense to say you can't put it out to tender right now. Absolutely. This came as a bolt out of the blue to me with the exception, I would say, of the chair of this committee and and, and, uh, Dolores Minogue. Uh, In fact, people didn't understand why there was a presentation being made. And I think there's a wee bit of political play going on here. As far as I'm concerned, there should be a collective approach by the Oireachtas members by the members of the local authority and particularly in the RD Municipal District to say to Transport Infrastructure Ireland, get this project 
as it currently exists up and running. The residents, if they get a guarantee that there, that there will be a solution found to the two junctions retrospectively, and that's what I said from day one, then there's no reason why there should be a delay in this project. But I think it's very important to say here that whether you're from the town or the country, this is not an issue for people arguing among themselves. This is an issue to do with cutting off people from the hinterland. I've dealt with this in but the past. But are they being scapegoated? Are the local people being scapegoated? Is there something else afoot here? Well, I, I'm a, I always uh, worry that, you know, there's a bit of sometimes ishk if we have, as, as, as the old Irish phrase says, something going on underground. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I will not be party to it. And I'm calling on the Oireachtas members and all of the local authority members to collectively uh, push Transport Infrastructure Ireland to get and get this project as it currently has planning permission for and agreed up and running and at this stage to give the residents a cast iron guarantee that their issues will be addressed retrospectively. Another issue I want to touch on with you briefly, uh, Declan Brannock, while we have you, and that is the report this morning that the Armed Guard, the support unit, will be moved to the border in preparation for Brexit. Now, I know we discussed this with you last week and your concerns around the Guard, the restructuring, but now they're saying... Uh, the guard, the commissioner, Drew Harris, said reserves have been built up for two years and they are ready. Do you believe him? Uh, I do. He addressed this uh, at, uh, when I left you here last week. I, I rushed to get to his presentation of the doll, and I'm quite sure your listeners are aware that he said there will be no major change uh, in the border infrastructure in terms of the reform. He has said that uh, there's passing out parade uh, from Temple Moor due in uh, November and that additional Gardaí will be deployed to the border region. But in relation to the armed response unit, I mean, there, there is an armed response unit in Dock. Uh, one has been set up in Cavan and uh, another one in Donegal. And so he there made will it clear, be a local response he, time, he, you he, believe? He made it clear that he's in the process of not alone enhancing uh, the armed response unit, but indeed going to deploy additional people to Dundalk. And I think that gives us some reassurance. You've got a sense of preparedness. Well, you know, if you look at his statements 12 months ago, he said there was no need for preparedness, we weren't going to have a hard Brexit and that, you know, uh, he, he didn't foresee that. Uh, he did indicate that they are in planning for the last two years. There are major concerns here that, that maybe, you know, we, we, we look at policing in the sense of, you know, whether it's robberies or armed crime or whatever it is. The whole issue of uh, the underworld, as I would describe it. And the it, whole violence in the Quinn case, it was appalling. It, it, it was an example of last week. What is going on here, he is very aware of the need to have that armed response unit beefed up, not just in Dundalk, but in Cavanaugh across the border region. And I do hope that the preparations that will be made in order to combat this criminal activity, which is very much in this underworld that I've mentioned, where whether it's high finance and moving of money, defrauding of the state, but more importantly, the whole the whole issue that maybe a lot of listeners are not aware of, for example, is is tra- people trafficking, is a, a is a, an issue of major concern. Indeed, the whole issue of how we deal with. Um, criminality and indeed the connectivity that needs to exist between all the police forces. There is a concern out there that 
in a Brexit situation that the type of information sharing that goes on within the various police forces across the world could be compromised and he, he is concerned and has said he is addressing those issues. All right and the Garda Commissioner also said there will be 1,500 new Garda recruits by 2021 which is of course uh, to be welcomed. Declan Brannock TD thank you for joining us so much today. Later on the programme we'll be hearing about a deficit of common sense on school buses. Orla Carmody on LMFM And the last remaining blockades on meat processing factories have now been removed and the long-running dispute by farmers appears to have come to an end. The Minister for Agriculture, Food and the Marine, Michael Creed, has said he will now set up a beef task force as agreed. The beef plan movement, representing many of the farmers around the country, had been protesting about the prices paid for cattle, which they believe does not make farming sustainable into the future. And we're joined now by Eamon Curley of Beef Plan. Good morning, Eamon. A long and weary road come to an end. What now? Uh, thanks, Orla. Yeah, I, I think it has been a long and weary road. Uh, and I suppose to say at the outset is that um, the same fundamental uh, problems remain in that uh, farmers are, are currently selling uh, beef b- below the cost of production and will be, um, even as a result of this agreement, uh, they'll still be selling beef below the cost of production. And I suppose what still has to happen is that a viable solution has to be found, uh, one that will involve the, the retailers and the processors, that the farmers' costs can be met. But the, the, the farmers have stepped away from the picket line and they're prepared to work with this new agreement. Now, now there's a lot of promises in the, in the agreement and it, it'll be up to the, the different uh, stakeholders to make sure that the, the promises are not empty promises. Do you believe uh, you achieved anything with the d- dispute, Eamon Curley? Um, well, I, I think what it, what it has done is it, it has highlighted the problems and it, it, it has stated to, I suppose, the processors and the retailers that the current pricing system where the farmer produces beef below the cost of production can't work. And I think it has made them realise that, that they're going to have to develop a better relationship with, with their farmer, with, with their farmers, um, so that a proper solution can be found. And like, like this is going to be a long road to to sort out this problem. Um, and I suppose this is the first step. Um, like there's other things uh, in line coming up, like Pather Tobin, uh, the, the TD involved with A and Two, is putting uh, a bill before the doll to to ban uh, below cost selling of beef. Well, he made the point on the program here last week that farming is a business like any other, and absolutely no business can sustain uh, costs being more than 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 receipt of 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 profit. It just is not sustainable. Yes. Um, but obviously, you know, you, your hope now would be that, in light of calling off the protests, that you know the the processors and the retailers, as you say, will actually honour the spirit of the agreement and start working with you to improve this. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Uh, like up to this point, uh, the farmers feel they have, have had very little empathy from farmers or, or, or from factories uh, and indeed from supermarkets. But, but we would hope that after this, uh, after farmers coming and standing up uh, and highlighting the problems, that, that um, they realise that they have to do more. Uh, and I, I think the customers of the uh, retailers 
need to put pressure on the retailers to, to make sure that the primary producer is looked after because it, it's uh, like recently farmers have, be, have been given bad press for, for trying to destroy the beef industry but, but, but the reality is that, that the processes and the retailers by not putting a, a sustainable pricing model in place um, the farmers would argue that it was in fact um, those bodies that, that, that weren't doing the meat industry any favours. Absolutely. And finally then, Eamon Curley, where does it leave your current stocks of cattle that obviously weren't brought, brought to the factories over the last few months? Yeah, well, there, there would be um, good supplies of cattle there. And uh, I think it's important that the factories um, don't hold grudges against farmers that were on the picket line and, and deal with them all equally and, and, and take their stock in, 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 a fair, in a fair manner. Now, the other thing that we, we, we have been working at is we've we, we set up a producer organisation. Uh, that's where uh, we'll have more bargaining power with factories and, and it'll be a, a better structure for farmers in which to sell cattle. So, so we hope to start taking in um, farmers into that producer organisation uh, and any farmers in Mead that, that would like to be involved in that uh, can get in touch with myself. All right, Eamon Curley of Beef Plan, thank you very much for joining us on LMFM this morning. We wish you luck with that. Now, it's National Parents Week when various organisations highlight the support they provide for parents, including a helpline operated by Parentline, when a friendly voice at the end of the phone might be just what you need to talk you down off the ledge when they're driving you nuts. And I don't say that lightly. I'd four under five myself at one stage. Interestingly, 87% of the calls made to Parentline are from females and we're joined now by Rita O'Reilly, CEO of Parentline. Good morning, Rita. Hi, Orla. Now, I'm not being smart, but it is tough at times, isn't it? It's not as, as wonderful and as idyllic as we, we might like to think. <laughs> it is tough. It is tough. There's no doubt about it. I guess really good times. Absolutely really good times. But we come across moments while we're rearing our children that we just don't know where to turn or what to say or what to do. You know, what what do we do about this situation? Like you were saying, you had, I think you said you had four under five I bet they were all four completely different people that presented different challenges at different times of their lives. You know, there's no way you could deal with all of that. You totally. Need, you need support. And every parent has different challenges and every child is different and unique and brings their own challenges, as you say. But you're, the whole point of parent line is that there is somewhere to turn to. If you're just in that moment having a tough morning or a tough afternoon, just pick up the phone and talk to somebody so you can just calm down. Isn't that the idea? That's exactly it. And it's, it's anonymous. It's non-judgmental, you know, so when you ring parents' line, we don't know what part of the country you're coming from. We don't see phones and if we return a call, no one sees our numbers. So it's very, very confidential. And that's very often people don't want to ask, you know, your Johnny is far better than, or you're telling me your Johnny is far better than my Mary and all of that kind of thing. Parents, there's competition out there. There's um, Parents don't know what's going on in other households. They think, my God, no one else's children behave like this. Mine are the only ones. And it's very hard to say it out loud. So that, that chat, that talk, and it is possible to Google. a lot of these and, and who are manning the lines? When you phone a parent line, if you're in that sort of moment of stress or tension, who, who's at the end of the phone? There's trained facilitators. All our facilitators, we've got 52 facilitators and they're trained in counselling and listening skills. And some of them have years and years of experience. We've one woman with us for 30 years. So she has spoken to a lot of parents over those years of all generations when her old children were small and now she's a grandmother, you know, so it's um, a lot of, lot of experience there. 
So the role is to listen to the parent, you know, active listening, and to guide them through their situation, ask the open probing questions and sort of let them come up with their answer. Very, very often a parent will ring us and say, I want advice with this. You know, I want you to tell me what to do with this. And we basically ignore that question, to be honest with you. We just go on and talk to the parent. And at the end of an hour, the parent will say, I know exactly what I'm going to do now. I'm going to do exactly what you told me to do. But we haven't told the parent what to do. It's the, classic, uh, it's the classic counselling or coaching line, isn't it, that you don't yeah, give absolutely. any advice, but often the person yeah. hears it that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they hear it that way and they, they, they solve their problem. They get it clear in their head. They see the wood for the trees and... Um, you know, it, it works. It definitely works. I'm looking now, uh, Rita, at the reasons for calls and the top 10 reasons and anger and aggression comes out strongly there, 18 percent. Teenage issues, 14 percent. Uh, schoolwork issues, marriage relationship and breakdowns. There's so many things that impact on parents. And as I said at the start, the majority, the vast majority of your calls are from from women, from mothers. Do you think there's more pressure on women nowadays to be the perfect yummy mum? I don't. I think probably women are more hands-on parenting. I, th- I think it is. There's pressure there. They have to be fairly perfect. There's no doubt about it. But also, in terms of statistics, women. There's more women parenting their children. And um, also, I think by nature, parents, women are more likely to talk in a helpline. You know, they they'll go through it. They'll explore it. Um, I have to say. Uh, the number of men ringing is increasing over the years. There was a time that we, I wasn't here at the time, but um, I heard a story in Parentline that on the first year of Parentline, somebody, some one man rang and he asked how he could help her wife, his wife with her parenting. So, uh, but that <laughs> that's not been. really what you had in mind when you set it up. No, not really. But as it went, it grew uh, over the years. It is growing. There's more and more men getting involved with the parenting, definitely. Um, but still, there is by far a majority of women. And when you when we talk about the variety of problems that they present with, and as I said, it's emotional abuse and depression and, you know, even discipline, how to actually manage, you know, your child who's misbehaving. And it's fascinating to see that in the teenage years in your survey, uh, girls are much more likely to cause a problem than boys, teenage girls. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and now, I have to say, if you, in the anger and aggression, boys are more likely, are, are higher there, and girls are more likely in the uh, sort of general teenage issues. Now, that amounts to, can I go to the disco? Can I come in at 11 instead of 12, or 10? You know, that it's all that sort of growing up issue. Pushing the boundaries. Exactly, exactly. Now, over the years, we've had a number of changes in that. There was one year, I remember, it was bang on 50-50 boys and girls. Some years have been slightly more than boys, more boys than girls. Some years slightly more girls than boys. But but girls in that issue, that area tends to be more often, more frequent. And I wonder sometimes, are parents more worried about girls? You know, that I might let the boys stay out till 11, but I want the the girl in at 10, you know. Maybe so, maybe so. Can I ask you, Rita Riley, to give me the number there for parent line for any person who's listening to this who might feel they just want a little chat about how they're doing as a parent? Yeah, we've two numbers depending on the package you have on your phone: one eight nine zero nine two seven two seven seven, or zero one eight seven three three five hundred. All right. The lines well, are open from 10, from ten o'clock until nine tonight. So that's eighteen ninety nine two seven two seven seven is is the main eighteen ninety number. Yes. Yeah. 
All right. Well, okay. Rita O'Reilly, CEO of Parentline, thank you indeed for joining us on LMFM this morning. There's a very good Facebook site called Peter and Jane for any stressed mummy listening this morning. It is so irreverent. It is so funny. And the writer just calls it out. All of the problems all of us face as parents. Well worth a look. We'll take a break. Text Orla now. 086-1800-658. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now it's time for your texts and comments, which we always love to get, as you know, and we're joined as usual by Marie Kearns. Good morning, Marie. What do you have for us? Good morning, Orla, and to everybody listening in. Some response already to your interview at the top of the show with Minister Helen McEntee. Shame is from Dundalk. Will Juncker and Tusk and all the other European bigwigs continue to back Ireland as the clock ticks down on a hard Brexit? He's wondering. He doesn't think that the former's comment on a hard border was helpful over the weekend and he feels that they could hang Ireland out to dry at the final hurdle. So we we'll, we'll Oh dear, that doom space. and gloom. Well, they've been very supportive so I far. I think so. I think they so have. as well. I think they've been overwhelmingly in our camp, but we'll see what happens. Tom from Midloud, make no mistake about it, Orla, if there's a hard border, there will be checks on the border. I can't see any other way around. A hard Brexit, sorry, there will be checks on the border. I can't see any other way around it, says Tom. James from Drogheda is very concerned about there being a no-deal Brexit it and says that maybe it's time to try and come up with an alternative to the backstop in order to get a resolution. And I think that's what um, Minister Helen McEntee was saying this morning. That's exactly what they're working on. Not an alternative, but something that offers the same, but is maybe going to be called something else. Siobhan admits that she's very worried. She says that Ireland is flying at the moment. The economy is on the up, she feels. The country is doing well. There's record employment and she feels that if there is a no-deal Brexit that it will be downhill from there and is worried about that. Uh, and the last one on Brexit from Gra- from Gronia, who thinks that there's going to be mayhem if there's a no-deal on October 31st and is not confident that the government is prepared for this. She feels that they've been pinning their hopes on a deal being reached, but what if that doesn't happen? All right, thank you, Marie Kearns. We'll take some more comments later if we get time. A dispute at the Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, which has been running since August, is in the Workplace Relations Commission this morning. The row has seen administrative staff and health and social care professionals at the hospital undertaking limited industrial action in the last few weeks over unfilled posts. And we're joined now by Barry Cunningham of Forza. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Orlando. Good morning to your listeners. So what is the background to this exactly? Well, the background to this is this is uh, an issue that's been ongoing for well over a year, Orla. There's been a huge investment in the hospital, which obviously we welcome, you know, an investment of £30 million, um, in the building. Uh, but unfortunately, there's been a reluctance on management to invest in the staff to work within that building. We have deficits of um, up to 27 clerical officers at the moment in the hospital, and also across the health and social area social care professional grades, which would be cardiology, dietetics, OT, pharmacy, physio, SLT, um, respiratory, so all of those professionals. Um, just to give you an example, as, as I was mentioned previously, we have a deficit at the moment of about 10 whole-time equivalents across pharmacy alone. Uh, so we need to get this issue resolved. So that's you know, gaps in the staffing levels all over the administration of the hospital, really, you're saying? Essentially, yes. And what's going to happen at the Workplace Relations Commission this morning? Well, what we're hoping to do is get agreement from management on the actual number of deficits. Um, so I think once once we agree what they are, we need a mechanism put in place to 
to ensure that these posts are filled because this is having a negative impact, obviously, on patient outcome. But also, of course, I have the most care professional grades. All of these people are registered professionals. So I need to ensure that they're protected at work so that they're coming to work and they can provide, you know, the best service they possibly can. And, and the same for our clerical staff. Um, the hospital management are saying that they have additional numbers in the system, but uh, it's certainly not across clerical and health care professionals. It, it, from the information that we have, it's across nursing. So there's additional nurses within the system, but there isn't that, you know, that figure for the health and social care professionals. I think we're all familiar with the impact of uh, short staffing on emergency units and we've all, we all know about the hospital trolleys and so on and Absolutely. the overworked staff and the long hours but I suppose we're not as aware of how it impacts on, as you say, people like dietitians and pharmacy staff and physiotherapists and speech therapists and so on. But you're hoping that at the Workplace Relations Commission this morning the hospital will in the first instance tell you how many are missing and then what they're going to do about those places. Is, is that the point Absolutely. of the meeting? Uh, and, and I suppose really the flashpoint for us is once we agree that figure, we need the assurances from management that it's going to be uh, prioritised and that these posts are going to be filled as a priority. Okay, and at the outcome of it then, what happens after that when you have finished the meeting? What's the next move? Well, the branch executive will make a decision as to whether we, we you know, we have an agreement that, they, that we can put to our members. Um, certainly that's our priority is to ensure that this issue is resolved but we can't resolve it ourselves in a vacuum we need um, management What form has the industrial action taken so far? Non-filling of posts um, not covering um, posts that are vacant in the system so what we try to do is you know allow management to run the hospital without a negative impact on patients but it's around statistics and stuff like that you know so financial reporting etc um, so we need this result. We need this result as soon as possible, or, or as well escalate. And uh, so it's not within our gift to resolve it alone. All right, Barry Cunningham of Forza, thank you for joining us this morning. We might come back to you later in the week if we've time to see how you got on at that Workplace Relations Commission meeting. And back to you, Marie Kearns, for a few more comments. What's come in now? Yes, we have a couple on the RD bypass. Um, Orla, just in response to coverage over the past couple of days, uh, John says that he was listening into the interview with uh, Anne on Friday, uh, the re- representing the residents from Mullins Town and Towns Park. And he says that he felt she came across very well and he can understand where the residents are coming from in relation to perhaps feeling isolated and cut off if there are cul-de-sacs. But at the same time, he cannot understand why there's talk of a delay of a year when they have waited so long for the bypass to happen and just wonders why the the issues in those two particular areas can't be ironed out and allow the work to still continue. I think that's the point we were making this morning and it seems to be the missing piece of the jigsaw as we were describing it, that everybody seems to be in agreement on this and yet nobody seems to be able to make this happen. It's it's extraordinary what's going on and obviously the, the everybody wants to see this, this bypass happen and to happen urgently because of the traffic congestion in RD. 
Yes, uh, another listener, um, Thomas, says that um, listening to uh, Deputy Declan Bratnock on the RD bypass, it's terrible if this is becoming a political football, so to speak. All of the politicians need to get together on this and present a united front that the area has waited for this for so long and it's badly needed. We also had a comment in from uh, retired councillor uh, Leonard Hattrick from Dunleer who says that um, you only have to look at Dunleer when the motorway was being built there. Some people said it would become a ghost town. This is in relation to concerns of traders. But it's the complete opposite. Uh, he's saying that Dunleer is booming at the moment and that local trade wasn't affected. And that's often the project. case in towns when it's bypassed. They get a much more kind of a village feel back again, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. Madeline says, let's hope this project is not lost forever. Could be just the excuse that's needed to give the money elsewhere. It cannot be lost, says Madeline. Uh, Peter says... Uh, RD needs a bypass. It makes no difference. Again, echoing what, what Leonard Hattrick has to say, made no difference to businesses in Dunleer. Uh, this is the year it should be made possible. Another listener, RD uh, needs the bypass. The traffic is mad. It's nearly as bad as Drogheda and feels that the people of RD should come together, sort out what the problems are and make sure that it happens. So that's a flavour of some of them this morning so far. All right, and we'll keep those texts and comments coming, please, because we love to get them, as you know. Now, a seat on a school bus is a hot topic at this time of the year for many parents as they try to get the routine sorted before the winter. The struggle we've all experienced getting the house up and out to school and work with minimum fuss. And we're going to have that story right after the break. Text Orla now 086 1800 658 Orla Carmody on LMFM Well as we've been hearing one Meath mother has to drive 400 kilometres each week bringing one son to school while his twin sits on the bus with an empty seat behind him and to put that in context that's the distance from Mallon to Mizzenhead every week We're joined now by Marie Devine from Beliver and Meath West Ainthu TD Pather Tobin who's described the situation as a deficit of common sense. And we'll start with you, Marie, if that's OK. Tell me about your sons, James and Michael, and the trouble you have getting them to school. OK, um, James and Michael, they're eight-year-old twins. They're in third class. And James has autism. And um, he's entitled to the special needs transport. And um, we found this school, which is the nearest school available with a mainstream place for Michael and a place in the unit for James. So um, we made applications for the transport and James is eligible and Michael's application was declined because he doesn't have a diagnosis of autism. Now under the school bus rules we know that uh, if a child has special needs yes they're entitled to a bus but that any other child in the neighbourhood who needs that place can take it if there's a place available but in your case there is a place available it seems bonkers that your son can't take it Yes there is there are seats available on the bus and um, we have appealed and we still get the same reply that Michael is not eligible. And you are literally watching him get on the bus, your son James, and then you have to follow that bus all the way with Michael in the car beside you. Isn't it just Absolutely. incredible? The bus picks James up at about 8.15 in the morning and we head off in the car behind them. 
it's absolutely extraordinary that this can actually happen. Now, I know you chose a school, perhaps at a bit of a distance from your home, but you chose it, as you say, for very specific reasons. We chose it because it is the nearest school that there is a place available for James in the ASD unit and a place for Michael in the mainstream. And James wouldn't get the bus if there was any other school any nearer. He wouldn't be eligible for the bus because he also has to to meet the criteria that it is the nearest school available. And it was important to you that and it was important to you that the twins went to the same school. Obviously, they played together at lunchtime. It is important, yes, to us that they go to the same school and important to them as well because uh, Michael is great support for James and they get integrated into the same class for a couple of hours every day and they share their school trips and their events and. It's very important. All right. Can I bring you in there, uh, Deputy Tobin? How has this been allowed to happen? Uh, Every year. And people will know that when it comes up to September, the the news is full of crazy situations around the country. Last year, you know, we had the kids in Kildalki in in Southmead having to walk to Trim uh, for school, uh, for, for the want of a school bus. Uh, this year we had kids in Winetown and Navan not having a school bus in, into Beaufort um, and we would have dozens of individual cases um, where people are just not able to get proper school transport into the schools. And I want to commend Marie because you know the work that she has done, like I've been working with Marie since last May trying to get this issue, issue resolved and many you know, families would have just given up at this stage. You know, I mean, they would have thrown their hands up into the air and they would have just decided to uh, give up, but Marie has decided to keep on working, and um, thankfully, uh, obviously, she has gained some level of attention uh, with regards to this. And now that we're looking for the departments to change it for Marie, uh, it's absolutely incredible that you would have a bus that's travelling from door to door, from Marie's house to the school, with one son on, and at the, the exactly the same route. Uh, Marie has to travel with another son. Uh, it it doesn't. It is no logic. There's no common sense. It's absolutely ridiculous. And for me, it's bureaucracy gone crazy. Uh, what happens is sometimes these departments they take a particular decision and they implement that across the, the country without any logic to local needs. It's a kind of a one-size-fits-all approach. Exactly, a one-size-fits-all, and it has to change. We've we've put in parliamentary questions. We have been in in contact with the department at all levels, up to the minister, and there's a rigidity there that simply won't change And this uh, for Marie and uh, her two sons. And, you know, we're just calling for a little bit of flexibility, a little bit of logic on this. And and don't forget, school bus places are a, a positive, a societal positive, it gets people out of their cars, it releases, uh, reduces uh, school congestion, transport congestion in the morning. And emissions, as we've been hearing so much about exactly. with climate control. Exactly. We have a, a government who's you know, happy to take photo ops around climate uh, action. And here's one of the simplest actions they could take, uh, making sure the kids actually get to school uh, properly in, in public transport. Now, what recourse does Marie have at this stage? You've said that she's written, you've made submissions, but what happens next? Well, in my view, the only recourse that, that's necessary here at this stage is for the minister to come in and resolve the situation. He needs to change the departmental policy and he needs to allow for a little bit of flexibility and the injection of common sense into the process. And the minister could easily do that by changing the policy. Uh, unfortunately, the minister goes missing for a couple of weeks every September because uh, obviously because of the pressure of so many parents around the country looking for issues to be resolved. 
we need we need a minister and a government who say is going to say that actually we're going to invest more in school transport. We're going to make it more available, easier to access, and more flexible, so that we have. Uh, all of those common goods that we've just discussed, and that for individual families like Marie, she's not battling for six months of the year, keeping her two twin uh, sons uh, together in the same school. Now, if I can bring you back in there, Marie, um, you've written to the Children's Ombudsman. Have you had any responses yet? Well, I have had a couple of responses, yeah, but it is still at the stage of they're, they're looking into it. And do you believe they will try to make representations on your, your behalf with the department? Oh, yes, I, I do think so, yes. Now, how is this impacting at the moment on uh, James and Michael, this idea of one going on the bus? I mean, does James get on the bus quite willingly for you every morning? James has established a routine now of getting on the bus and it's very important for him to have a routine. And Michael, would yes, he goes on the bus, he looks forward to the bus and it gives him independence. And Michael would love to go on the bus with him. Um, but... That isn't the case. And then um, the alternative would be maybe to take James off the bus. And we can't do that to upset the the routine and the independence that we've And obviously to hold on to that place. It was a hard won place and you don't want to lose it. Of course, yes. Now, obviously, we covered um, the whole school bus issue in August at the sort of go back to school time here on the programme. And, you know, we got all the assurances from the department and from the uh, transport, you know, regarding that if spare places were available, then children could use them. But in your case, you, you are literally looking at a number of spare places every day on that bus. How many spare places would you say are on the bus? Well, it seems to be a 14 seater bus. And if now... Not officially, but I would say there would be at least six or seven spare seats, maybe more. You are looking at six empty seats on that bus every morning. That is extraordinary. And would you know, are they uh, seats that have actually been allocated to somebody who has a bus ticket but is simply not using it? Or is it a seat that's not been allocated? You don't. Would you be aware of that? I'm not officially aware of it, but I would say it has not been allocated the seat has not been allocated. So it could easily be allocated to Michael in your view. Absolutely, yes. Back to you, Deputy uh, Tobin. Is there any way of finding out are all those seats allocated? Well, we we asked the department uh, what was the situation with those seats and the department were very, very uh, rigid in their answer. Their attitude was, listen, there's a policy here. The policy says that uh, Michael has a closer school that he can go to and as a result, uh, he just cannot fit into the criteria that uh, allows him uh, to use those particular uh, seats. So that's the idea that you can only get a bus ticket to a, a bus if you of to a school if you have to go to that school at a remove. Yeah, but there's a problem here as well because the government is not providing uh, enough uh, autism units and enough school places for children with autism in schools around the country. So you know, it's it's not just as happening in Meath, but right across the country, many parents are finding it very difficult to get places for their kids, and they're travelling half the country to get those particular places. And it doesn't make sense to send, you know, one kid uh, in, 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 your, in your family to one school and another child to another school, especially when one child can be of great support to uh, the child with special needs. I believe the, the government have a kind of a laissez-faire attitude. They sit on their hands with these issues. I think it's shocking that Marie has to break the privacy of her own family situation to actually just, you know, make a such a logical, obvious request that you know any normal person would, would, would try to achieve 
Why is it the case, Ed, that Marie has to do that? And you can bet your bottom dollar for every, t- for every person there is like Marie who has the confidence and the strength and the courage to stand forward uh, to fight their case. There are dozens of other families who are simply just, you know, driving those 20, uh, those 20 miles for every journey, those 400 miles every weekend, you know, and the stress and the strain that creates in their families is something shocking. So what we're asking for the government to do, invest in a little bit of common sense, a little bit of logic, you know, make a difference with regards public transport in local communities. Make sure that, you know, we're, we're taking kids out of private cars into public transport, reducing congestion, reducing CO2, uh, and obviously strengthening local schools as well. All right. And we would um, echo your compliments to um, Marie Devine for going public with her situation this morning. As you say, it took an awful lot of courage and uh, to see it all over the papers this morning is fantastic and hopefully it will get you a result. So that's Marie Devine and Pather Tobin. Thank you for joining us this morning on LMFM. We'll take a break. Text Orla now 086 1800 658 Orla Carmody on LMFM. Still to come on the programme, a bishop backs parishioners who want to see female priests. But first, last week on the programme, we heard from many sides in the long-running story of the public services card and whether the data gathered by the Department of Social Welfare is being held legally. The question now is whether the Data Protection Commissioner is gearing up to commence enforcement proceedings against the department following the publication of their report, resoundingly rejected by the department. Journalist Michael Clifford has written that he believes the government is actually goading the DBC to take it to court and he joins us now. Good morning, Michael. Morning. Now, you wrote in a way, Michael, that leads me to believe you feel pretty strongly about this. Well, I wrote a piece in the Irish Examiner in my newspaper last uh, Friday, Orla, and the, the, the gist of it, as far as I can see, there are two issues here. First of all, there is the basis on which um, the Department of Social Protection under Minister Regina Doherty is objecting to the Data Commissioner's um, report. And secondly, there's the bigger picture, and that is what effect does this have on the Data Commissioner's standing as a result of this challenge, which inevitably looks like it's going to go to court. Now, in terms of the big picture, we should take into account one of the, um, what you might call, byproducts of our large foreign direct investment is that the Data Protection Commissioner in this country is effectively the police woman in this instance for uh, the major um, tech companies like Google and Facebook who have their European headquarters here. And therefore, proportionate to the size of the country and the economy here, her job is much more important and much bigger than might otherwise be the case. And you've concerns that because the government is to some extent ignoring the views of of the Data Protection Commission, that these people now might do the same thing? Well, it's certainly, I mean, put it this way, if if you're in a a position of senior management in one of these companies and and, and the Data Protection Commissioner, for instance, who, who has already opened investigations, which was even highlighted in the likes of the Financial Times, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner has opened investigations into Google. Um, You immediately only have to say, well, look at their own government. They quite obviously don't respect the uh, decisions that are being made there. And one could argue that perhaps they're undermining the Data Protection Commissioner in that respect. So I think that is very important and it's something that is being missed 
in the current row between the two of them. I think in fairness, um, Minister Regina Doherty was at pains to say over the last few weeks that she respects fully the work of the DPC, that she has great regard for Helen Dixon, but that this is just business and it's it's just a, a difference of, of an interpretation of the law. Well, I'm sure it's nothing personal and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Regina Doherty the height of respect for Miss Dixon on that basis. But the actions speak far louder than the words in terms of what has developed into the row between the two of them now. And it would certainly appear that the department's official attitude towards the Data Protection Commissioner, as I say, in the context of the Commissioner's larger uh, brief, is certainly questionable. The other issue that arises is how Regina Doherty and her department have gone about this business. Remember, they had a draft report of this, they had a draft copy of this report a year ago. Now, it was certainly open to them if alarm bells went off suggesting that the 60 million that had been spent in the public services card was perhaps money down the drain. It was certainly open to them at that point to at the very least begin exploring legal opinion uh, as to whether or not the commissioner's uh, report was on robust grounds. It would appear they didn't do that. And then they delayed the publication of the report from on August 16. Miss Dixon asked them to publish within 10 days. They delayed it until they got all their ducks in a row. And then they came back announcing that they had this legal opinion that said she had gone beyond her remit. Now, interestingly, the Department of Transport last year had a different opinion, which told them they shouldn't continue to use the public services card or insist on using it for people who are renewing driver's licence. So there's a lot of legal opinion in there that is conflicting. That's the nature of legal opinion. Um, But putting it in the context of what's going on here, you have to question it. As well then, last week, on the day prior to the... Finally, we got the publication of this report. And on the day prior to it, the Starty's department released their new so-called anti-fraud strategy in relation to social welfare. And they threw around the figure about half a billion euro, I think it was 513 million, and that they were going to re-examine um, the, 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 claim, uh, the claiming status of something like, uh, I think it was three or 400,000 people. Now, all of that, 750,000 people, individuals, excuse me, all of that would lead one to believe that social welfare fraud was a serious, serious issue costing hundreds of millions of euro and that perhaps something like a public service card was a very useful um, tool in combating this. There's two issues there. First of all, um, consistently the Comptroller and Auditor General has put welfare fraud in the region of 40 to 60 million, which is a a tenth of the figure that was thrown around there. And the other issue then is that once the report was published the following day by the Data Protection Commissioner, it suggested that the card was not of much use in combating social welfare fraud to the extent that there is any at all. So, so your feeling is that your feeling is that this idea of there being a vast uh, social welfare fraud problem is not actually the case. Well, it's not my feeling. It's, it's according to the Comptroller and Auditor General over last three or four years, as far as I can imagine, he he has consistently put forward uh, figures in the region of forty to sixty million. Which is which is just about break even with the cost of what the investment in this, uh, this scheme in the first instance. It's also a percentage of it's also a percentage of one percent of the total budget in social welfare. No, don't get me wrong. 
I'm sure there are inefficiencies. I'm sure there are overpayments that shouldn't have been made. But classifying all this as fraud creates a very different environment. And particularly when you're trying to push something like the, the, the public services card um, in that regard, you know. Back to the report for a moment and the delay in the publication of it. There seems to have been a bit of um, discord between the minister and her own department in that regard because uh, repeatedly throughout this period she kept saying she believed it had to be published and she would publish it and she was about to publish it. But then um, her own department uh, just a few days before it was eventually published said that they weren't going to publish it, that it was not in the public interest. How did that come about? Well, first of all, I'm sceptical about discord between minister and the department because very often you um, you can have a minister coming out and saying this must be done. I've experienced other stuff I've worked on even in, in, in recent months in that regard and it not uh, actually surfacing. I think, I, I may be wrong, this is only an opinion, that um, because there continued to be, uh, particularly from those who'd questioned the public service card all along, there continued to be pressure to publish this and there was particular comments that were made I think that were taken um, they were taken in the context of, of further delay I think ultimately it would appear that that was published uh, because of the pressure that kept building up for it to be published and perhaps as you say in, in light of you know getting ducks in a row it probably was waiting for that legal opinion to be found was it? Well, you you could say that, or you could say the ducks in the row were in order to have a very good public relations strategy in order to put forward your case. As I say, like the the, the social welfare uh, anti-fraud strategy that comes out a day before publication and that sort of thing, you could well say that getting the ducks in the row was all about creating the environment which would uh, be most favourable to putting forward your case that you're going to challenge the Data Protection Commission. So, uh, Michael Clifford, where do you think it goes from here? Will we see this enforcement happen? I'd say, I I would imagine that the the Commissioner has no choice but to do that on the basis of the robustness of her report. I'd imagine she's no choice but to go for enforcement. And in that event, it would appear that it'll go to the Circuit Court. But, as I wrote in the piece in the Irish Examiner, um, one could posit the theory that the strategy by the minister is that if you push this out if you put if you if you go to court therefore you're going to push it out do you push it out beyond the next election because the alternative is the opposition at the moment can point to this and say particularly in light of recent stuff like the children's hospital and the national broadband strategy they can point to this and say another 60 million down the drain i'm not saying that but i'm just saying that was what political opponents of the government would say and therefore this is another example of incompetence in, uh, with public money on the government's part if that is a fear then one possible strategy is you push it out beyond the next election and that is a different country as they say well, Yes indeed and uh, we certainly haven't heard the end of it Michael Clifford thank you for joining us on LMFM uh, this morning and coming up next the rally in Dundalk at the weekend uh, supporting Colosh de Lou, the only Irish language school between Belfast and Balbriggan Text Orla now 086 1800 658 Orla Carmody on LMFM 
On Saturday, a rally was held in Dundalk to protest over the decision to end teaching exclusively through Irish in Colosh de Lou and to celebrate the Irish language, music and culture. And our reporter, Helena Mullins, was there and spoke to some of those at the event. And here's what they had to say. Julian Spawn, it's great to have you here supporting the Soval Colosh de Lou. So tell us a little bit about, about why you came up to Dundalk here today. So we're here to support um, the students and the parents of Clash de who are bravely taking on the authorities and saying, Nisha Makalor, Gyalchev Idikastrivanagwega, you promised education to the medium of Irish for our, uh, for our uh, children, and now they're reneging on that. Um, so and to say that this isn't good enough they, they should be catered for um, and the services that they were having they had before the start of the summer should be provided for them again Manus you spoke from the heart here today to explain about your own you had complete Irish speaking education from first to sixth year at Lochlu. What is it? what did it mean to you? I just think it's important. It's, Irish as a language is integral to our culture here in Ireland. I feel that's it's it's important to keep it going, and I feel like Clashlu was a, it had so much potential to perpetuate Irish throughout just loud and just in general, just to pique people's interest in Irish. Because I couldn't say with absolute certainty that I'd have any sort of interest, like the the same amount of interest in Irish as I do now, if not for Clashlu. And now you're going on to study Irish and history in college, which is amazing. But, um, you know, what, is it, what do you make of today? Like, did you actually find a threat of the Clochelou ever being in jeopardy while you were at school for six years? Uh, yeah, in first year we started out without any knowledge of Clochelou even existing. We were just told that Clochelou would be its own standalone school. But then in second year they brought the parents in for some sort of meeting saying Clochelou is going to be established next year. But not to worry that it'll have nothing to do with us and now here we are six years later and they're merging together Clochelou is you know on its way out as it seems in a way but we're here to celebrate the Irish language and culture and hopefully we'll get a resolution is that what you're looking for? that's absolutely yeah it's great to see so many people out here see the support yeah. you're, you're on the parents committee and for Save Clochelou yeah. how, how is the process going so far? very bad for us yeah uh, we need a new school away from that premises. You seem, it just seems to be a washout. Like if you're in merging with another school, it's all yeah. going to be the medium of true English. Yeah, it, it's all true. All it, the education. It, it's all true English. My young home that night, she's junior, junior, crying. She didn't know the English of the of junior self. We're here to uh, show a passion for the Irish, and we all love the Irish here, yeah. And I'm ashamed of myself because I can't speak Irish. <laughs> but uh, my kids do it, and I'm proud of them. And anybody who speaks Irish, I love it. Yeah, so hopefully they can do something over in that school and get Irish back in full Irish stream in the school. But I doubt it's going to happen. Okay. You know? Well, we'll see, we'll see. You yeah. are definitely showing the passion yeah. and drive for the Gaelga, and it's really, really lovely to see. Only for Aidan Kinsla as well, I think would be lost with him because he's passionate, he's driving it all. We're all behind Aidan there, and uh, look, it'd be nice if uh, all the TDs and councillors and get together and try to get even a rule number we need a rule number for the school if we had a rule number it'd be a big help at the minute they're saying 
there is no close to Louis, but when you walk into the school, there's signs saying close to Louis, you know, on the corridors, it's printed close to Louis, you know, and it's sad. Uh, we did talk about local TDs there, so Peter, we're just outside your offices here in the centre of Dundalk. Uh, you spoke passionately on the mic there about why we're here today, so could you reiterate that now for the radio? The bottom line is that every child in this country, in the whole island of Ireland, is entitled to get educated in Irish. Uh, I spoke to the Minister of Education, Joe McHugh, during the week there in, in the Dáil. The reason I spoke to the Minister was uh, I've been contacted by a lot of concerned uh, parents about their kids not getting educated in Croatia and in, in Irish. Uh, I asked him what was happening. He told me, plain and simple, the bottom line is that he's not going to get involved in the situation in Croatia It's up to the Department of Education, it's up to the LMETB, it's up to the parents to sort the situation out. I went there and I met the principal of Croatia uh, He has no problem meeting up with the parents. Uh, there's 47 teachers at the moment in Croatia Only four of them can speak Irish. Uh, the kids are not getting a proper education. So I, I'm just saying to say, we all have to sit down in a room together and get it sorted once and for all. There should be no stone left and torn to make sure that our, our children in Loud and surrounding areas are taught in Irish, their native language. And that was Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Louth, finishing off that package from Helena Mullins at the Clostalou rally in Dundalk on Saturday. And just to point out that there are several Gaelscolina at primary level in the northeast, and this is the only secondary school that's offering an Ithacus three Gaelga at the moment. And now to the subject of women priests. A survey carried out in the Catholic Diocese of Killal in the west of Ireland has found that eighty percent of respondents backed women being ordained to the deaconate and six. 69% agreed that women should be ordained to the priesthood. The Bishop of the Diocese, John Fleming, has given his blessing to the starting of a process. Now, he may not be in favour of women priests himself because he's possibly not allowed to be, but he has given his blessing to the starting of a process which would see women take a stronger role in the running of 22 parishes in North Mayo and West Sligo. And Noel Baker is the social affairs correspondent with the Irish Examiner and he joins us now with the story. Good morning, Noel. Morning, Orla. Now, how significant is it that the uh, bishop is at least being very open-minded and allowing this process to be examined as such? Yeah, I, I guess it is significant. I mean, it's a progressive move, unquestionably. Um, I mean, the the, uh, the idea of this, I suppose, is that he is facilitating a process by which you have the voice of the parishioners around the, the uh, diocese, and there's 22 mainly rural parishes in this particular part of the country, and that they effectively garner the views of people who are going to Mass every week, find out what those issues are, then kind of crunch those numbers, come up with uh, a package of proposals that then a representative council voted on. So as you correctly pointed out, it's not as though the bishop himself is spearheading this, but he gave it his imprimatur in, in terms of setting the parameters for what the process would be. And it's obviously reflected in the votes back. So you had a 300-strong diocesan assembly here, which represents the parishes, the 22 parishes in question. So there's delegates from each of those. And they voted on a particular range of topics and they arrived at these findings. And they're obviously quite pronounced because you have 85% backing the view that priests be allowed to marry, 81% supporting priests who have married being returned to active ministry, 80% backing uh, women being ordained to the diaconate, and then 69% agreeing that women be ordained to the priesthood. So quite I guess we can look at it another way and we can say that there's probably no diocese in the country that isn't looking at ways of reaching out more, uh, trying to shore up mass attendances, trying to get more lay people involved in the church. But this particular process seems to have been particularly progressive. Now, the numbers were crunched, as you say, by the Institute for Action Research in Kerry. Who are they exactly? 
I can't tell you. Frankly, on top of my head, <laughs> short I don't answer know. to that. So there you go. And that's not a trick a question or a trick answer <laughs> to a trick question. I mean, they were brought on board, obviously, by the steering committee who were involved behind this whole process. And it does seem to have taken a long period of time. I mean, when you, like Brother Brendan Hoban, who people might know from the Association of Catholic Priests, he um, is a pivotal member of that particular group, but he's also involved in this. And um, while the Association of Catholic Priests has rubbed up uh, in, in an abrasive manner, maybe with uh, the church hierarchy on some issues or in some parts of the country, maybe. Because of how progressive they're known Absolutely, to be. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're possibly not everybody's uh, tastes in relation to their own particular views, uh, rightly or wrongly, if you look at it that way. But they have taken a very long time, uh, the delegates, I should say, in this particular part of the country, they've taken a very long time to actually come up with this process. It's not something that was slapped together over a couple of weekends. I mean, you know, you had a six-month period of discussion that started everything. So there was reflection and study there on that. There was an analysis of priest numbers that indicated that by 2037, which isn't that long into the future, the 22 parishes would be served by five or six priests. And we know in recent years, and also from our own uh, opinion poll that we conduct around this time of the year to do with the uh, planning championships, the idea of masses being cut back and services being curtailed in uh, parishes up and down the country is nothing new, um, but it's becoming more prevalent uh, because of the fallen vocations. That's what I was actually wondering about all of this. Is there a needs must element in a lot of it? Now, the people who were surveyed, as you say, were not randomers. They were active mass goers. So they're people with skin in the game, so to speak. And, you know, they have said they would like to see all of these changes. And is it because they're fearful that they'll turn up at mass some Sunday and there won't be anybody there to celebrate it? Maybe that's the case, or that they don't want to look around at an empty church. I mean, they value the church, they value the role of the church in society, in a community, um, on a national level. And I suppose if they want to have a stronger church, and if they're still attending uh, the church and church services every week, I guess maybe their attitudes towards how it can function have changed um, over the years. So it's not like 30 or 40 years ago when there, I suppose there was an expectation that everybody was going to attend Mass on a Sunday morning or Saturday evening, and that was that. I mean, this particular uh, process here found that a, a spot survey of all Masses in the diocese over three consecutive weekends indicated that Mass attendance overall was at 29%. That would strike me as quite low, um, particularly for what is a rural, predominantly rural part of the country. So I guess those people have looked around and maybe they've they've said the, there's very little future in this unless we can kind of shore things up. And also, I suppose it, it maybe reflects more kind of... Um, nuanced view of society as well because you know I mean we have had women presidents you know we have had uh, women reach the uh, level of Tonishta in the Oireachtas for example and we know that they're still under representation but why would the church be any different why would the church be any different um, to any other walk of life in society particularly when I'm sure if you looked at that 29% mass attendance rate I'm sure a very large percentage of those were women and certainly um, coming out of the America, we have seen a very strong movement for uh, women to have a greater role in the church. You've an awful lot of nuns and former nuns who really actively want a bigger role because, as you say, it's one of the last bastions where women are excluded. Yeah, arguably that is the case. And I mean, again, I suppose no one is saying that, that women don't have a role to play because obviously they do hugely already. But this is maybe a very interesting approach in that it's coming from the bottom up. I mean, maybe there has been an argument that up to now, this whole idea of 
ordination of women priests, for example, or having uh, allowing priests to marry has been very much an ideological thing. And that when it comes to the Vatican or the, the senior church hierarchy, they can look at it and they can go, well, look, there's a lot of theology here that says that this can't happen. But if you have a groundswell of support from parishioners, who are the people who are actually going to services each and every single week, then that presumably carries much more clout. And it's coming from the ground up. And I guess there might be a point in the future, to go back to your needs must point, where it's just undeniable that this needs to be looked at and debated. Why must it always be the way that it has always been? Can we change things? And obviously, this is only recommendations, but presumably they will send them forward to the central diocese in Dublin. Will they be then sent forward to Rome? That is the idea. I mean, as you correctly point out here, see, this is a much broader process, I guess, and and there's probably similar processes going on, maybe not to the same extent in other dioceses, but there are things that this steering committee or that this uh, diocesan assembly would have arrived at where there are very practical things that they can do and implement within the diocese straight away, right? Um, And they don't need the permission, let's say, of anybody higher up the chain to do it. Um, But there are other things, obviously, like these fundamental issues. All they can do, I guess, is pass them on to the bishop who has given his commitment that he will then pass them on, and it will be off to the Irish Episcopal Conference, the, the papal nuncio, and one assumes ultimately All right. Noel Baker, We're coming to the end of our programme. Noel Baker, Social Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Thanks indeed for joining us with that. A very interesting one indeed. And that's where we have to leave it for today. My thanks to Marie Kieran's producer Maggie Maguire and Chris back on sound, looking very fresh after his break, and we were welcoming him back and we'll be with you again all going well at 9.15 tomorrow morning. Until then bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.